What in the World, the language podcast. Today I have the honor of speaking with Dr. Krishana Heinz Gaither and Liz Torres Melendez. Dr. Heinz Gaither is the director for the Intercultural Engagement Center and the Associate Vice President for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Liz is the Immigrant Student Coordinator at Guilford College. Thank you guys for being with us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Glad to be here. Today's topic on the podcast will be Voces Invisibles, Disrupting the Master Narrative with Afro-Latina Counter Stories. Dr. Heinz Gaither, could you tell us a little bit about the project Voces Invisibles and how it came about before we get into the discussion? Sure. So um, some colleagues of mine who are editing um, a, a textbook, um, Reimagining Languages for Social Justice, they reached out to me because we had worked together for over a decade on many different projects in the past. And they are very committed to social justice, reached out to me knowing that I have that same orientation and asked what I contribute to their book. Um, I was really excited to do it, and I had been working with a student on um, just telling her story of being an Afro-Latina on campus and in her world language program and what did that mean for her. And I had, all, I had really wanted to expand that project, and so I reached out to my staff member, um, Liz Torres Melendez, um, who is of Puerto Rican descent, and knew that she too had an affinity for this topic. And so asked both of them would they co-author this project with me. We did receive a grant from our institution to conduct the research from the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. And also the editors of the book, they wanted co-authored pieces. They thought it was really important to bring in multiple voices on the project and to give opportunities to people who may not normally have the opportunity to publish. So I think that really sets a really firm foundation for social justice. So for our listeners that may not know what the term Afro-Latina is, um, could you provide us with an explanation? There's not one explanation um, of Afro-Latinidad. Um, I think it means many different things to different people. And so um, historically, we tend to think of Afro-Latinos or um, Afro-Latinx communities as people who are um, of African descent. As we know, many people in Latin America are of um, African descent. But we specifically, um, oftentimes when we use that term, are referring to people who have phenotypic characteristics of African heritage. Mm -hmm. And so darker skin tones, uh, different hair textures, different features that we oftentimes associate with Negroid phenotypes or with um, those who are of African, African descent. I will say for our research purposes, we do have um, um, some Afro-Latinas in our research who would identify as such, who would say I'm of African heritage um, and who have phenotypic characteristics of um, African heritage. But by and large, the population that we're working with for our research who we're interviewing, um, they are folks who have one parent who is from Latin America and one African-American parent. That's probably the majority of the folks that we're working with. Okay, Liz, you care to add to that? Yeah, I would just say to me something that is particularly important, identifying as Afro-Latina myself, to me, it really matters what people would racialize you as when they look at you. So if mm -hmm. someone would look at you and think, oh, you are mixed with African-American or you are African-American, but you have Latin descent in some way, 
um, I think that to me is very important. Absolutely. So according to your research, were the participants um, always aware of their dual heritage? Was one culture more dominant in their experience? And if not, when did they become aware of it? Yeah, it's really interesting in our research, every single participant has always been aware of their dual heritage, and they never felt like they needed to choose one or the other. They felt very aware and informed of both um, until they were around other people or in school, whether it be K through 12 or college. And that was where they felt like they needed to choose to be either black or Latinx. Wow. Yeah, so that's that's interesting. When they get to college, they have to choose an identity, right? Right. Interesting. So growing up, um, how are the participants connected to their black heritage? Um, how are they received by black communities? Yeah, there's um, a lot of folks talk about being well-received by their black community and within their black identity, um, except for when it came to a few things. So hair texture, your hair, oh, you wouldn't understand what it means to take care of your hair. Your hair is too loose, your curls are wavier. Um, but for the most part, they felt very accepted by the black community because it was very easy visibly to see visibly. that they were black, yeah. So they never, they rarely felt that their identity was denied in that community. Okay, um, so were the participants also connected to their Latino, Latina heritage? Um, how were they received by the Latinx communities? That's where the difference comes in a lot because they were visibly black and some of them spoke Spanish growing up, some of them did not. So that played more of a role into how they were accepted by the Latinx or Latino, Latina community because they felt like if they spoke Spanish, they had more of an in. And with the Latinx community that we have in North Carolina, they felt like they didn't fit the Central American mold necessarily, right. or what visually would connotate someone who is Latinx here in North Carolina. Right. So they felt more excluded by the Latinx community, or like they had more to prove, like they had to be, um, some of our participants have Puerto Rican descent, so like they had to be more Puerto Rican or more like show the flags on their body, right, have right. the flag in their room to show like, yes, I am yes, Puerto I Rican. Yes, I am indeed. Yeah. Do you, have you discovered, um, and this could be for you, Liz, or Dr. Heinz Gaither, um, uh, my students are always um, taken aback when they meet a black person, a person of color that can speak Spanish. Mm -hmm. They're like, I didn't know that. I didn't have you heard that from students and experienced that yourself, maybe personally? Absolutely. So um, it is very common. It is not the expectation that people who look like me, African Americans, will speak another language, which is unfortunate because. Let me, let me add, yes. not to cut you off of that, yes. my students are African American. I, yes. I think I have maybe one white student. Mm -hmm. So when I say my students, uh, my students of color always, they are taken aback. Of, Yes. And when I was at my last institution where I, I taught Spanish full time, um, I actually interviewed my students there and I asked them, what did you think when I walked into the room as your instructor? And I had it was the same answer from the African-American students as well as the white students. They were shocked. They were not expecting me to be the person um, who was going to teach them a language. And then sadly, they did admit to me that their expectations were lower that they questioned how oh, wow. well I would speak the language, 
um, how well I would teach it. They questioned how well you would speak that language. They did. Based they did. solely on the color of your they skin. They did. And this is what they told me. So wow. we had, I guess, created enough community where they at least were open enough to tell me that. Um, I dispelled all of their myths. Um, so it was fine. And Obviously. They, you know, we became very, very close. But um, in the community, um, that is very common. And, and I would say when, because when I'm speaking Spanish, sometimes, um, I think I have an accent when I speak Spanish, but sometimes, um, very commonly, the assumption may be that I'm Caribbean or I'm Cuban right. or I'm Dominican. I get that a lot. People will just assume that I'm from some Latin American country. So still, they don't automatically assume that I'm African American. They, they tend to see an exoticism when they hear the language spoken from someone who looks like me. So Liz, have you have you experienced anything similar? Um, yeah. yeah, so I have always been racialized as mixed. So the first question that people ask me is, what are you mixed with? Or which parent is African-American? Oh, so yeah. when I start speaking Spanish, people are like, wait, Whoa. you're not black and white? What wait is that? Yeah. Right. Yeah, and then speaking, I'm from Puerto Rico, so I have that Puerto Rican accent when I speak Spanish very heavily. I love and people, <laughs> Thank you. I do too. <laughs> Um, that is not a common experience, I will say. Um, Could you repeat that, please? Yeah, that is not a common experience, I will say, because yeah. most people, when they hear my accent, they think, oh my gosh, like, you don't know how to speak Spanish, or you Puerto Ricans, like, trash the language. That's, um, that, that's that norming of, uh, of, of one language, right? Putting yeah. you, uh, demoralizing you as a person when, when you hear things like that, that's... As a Spanish teacher, I would never say <laughs> such a thing. Um, I want to read you guys some quotes um, or some experiences that I came across, that I came across in some of my readings that I share with my students. And it has to do with racial profiling. And these are quotes from Afro-Mexicanos, right? Um, kind of the police um, made me, and I'm quoting, uh, an Afro-Latino in Mexico. The police made me sing the national anthem three times because they couldn't believe I was Mexican, says Chongo El Bandeno, a black Mexican singer-songwriter. Um, and he also goes on to state, I had to list the governments of five states. And this is within Mexico, right? And, and he is... He'd lived there, and just because of the color of his skin, he was he was profiled. And I know that's not necessarily in the scope of yes. your research, but mm -hmm. could you address kind of that sort of bias? Absolutely. So in my early days of conducting this research, um, I did a research trip to Cuba to study Afro-Cubanos. And when I was in Cuba, on my way there on the plane, I sat beside of a white Cuban, and I, was, I had received a grant to study race relations in Cuba. And so this gentleman, he said to me, there's no racism in Cuba. And I thought, how interesting. And he said, no, he said, it's not like in your country. Mm. So meaning that in the United States, you all have all of these racial issues. He said, simplemente somos cubanos. We're just mm. Cuban here. Right. And so he was a white Cubano. When I got to Cuba, very interestingly, every white Cuban that I asked that question of, they always said there's no racism here. There was right. one academic who was studying the topic who said there is. By and large, the ordinary people said no. Every black Cuban that I spoke with not only said that there's racism here, but gave me examples of how mm. their experiences were very different. Their story was um, different. And I even had experiences of walking down the street with black Cubanos and having the police to approach us and ask for their identification um, for, for 
speaking to foreigners, for speaking to travelers. Um, and they were pretty clear that this was an experience that was shared by black Cubanos that right. their white counterparts did not experience. And so I think there's a perception oftentimes in Latin America that it's based that the discrimination there is based on class and it's not based on race. They're all just have a national identity mm -hmm. because it's very common, even for Afro-Cubanos and Afro-Puerto Ricanos, for them to simply say, I'm Puerto Rican, right. I'm Cuban. Mm -hmm. But when you unpack their experiences, this is actually very, very common that dark-skinned Latinos have a very different existence and experience within their own countries. Mm -hmm. And also when they come to the United States, there's a research by a scholar named Frank um, who did very in-depth data on Afro-Latinos or Afro-Latinx people who came to the United States and the external racialization of being racialized as black here in the U.S. also um, attributes to a vastly different experience than their white counterparts who mm -hmm. may have come from the same country of origin, but they mm -hmm. are going to have not only a drastically different experience of marginalization in their country of origin, but also in the U.S. So it's kind of like being socially homeless in wow. both locations. Wow. Absolutely. Thanks for addressing that. So kind of everything is connected today. Like we live in a globalized <laughs> world, right? Um, so how has social media impacted uh, their experiences as Afro-Latinas? I'll start and then maybe Leah can chime in. Um, so from what I recall from the interviews that we did, um, and again, we're conducting first person narrative interviews with participants who self-identify as Afro-Latina, right. many of whom have one African-American parent and one uh, Latinx parent. And so what they have reported to us by and large is um, they are comforted when they see images of themselves represented in the media. However, there are very few of them. And so most of the depictions of Latinos in the U.S. media and even in Latin American media are of light-skinned um, Latinos yeah. or white-passing Latinos or blonde-haired Latinos. Oftentimes, the people of color, even if they are portrayed as uh, Latinos, will be housekeepers and servants and things like that. And so they did report there being a disconnect between um, um, the representations or the lack of representations of people who look like them. Right. And then on social media, um, they have all, for the most part, said that, yes, it is nice to see some representation of themselves on social media and to be able to find hair tutorials done by Afro-Latinas right. and Instagram pages. But a lot of times it comes at the expense of black women. So the complimenting of Afro-Latinas is because for some reason, having that Latinx heritage makes you better than just a regular old black woman. Um, so that they're not very happy with that. So within, within the Latinx community, you're saying that biases exist, that the other, right? They're othering the, the African-American community. Yeah, and wow, in the black community as well. So a lot of the participants expressed frustration with black men who were more willing and more vocal about wanting to date an Afro-Latina who still looks black but has some Latin in their blood um, over wanting to date or be with a black woman. African-American woman, which is interesting to hear. And then they were also kind of skeptical of the over-sexualization of Afro-Latinas on social media. So they felt like a lot of the representation they saw was 
in certain kinds of dress or dancing in certain kinds of ways. And so it wasn't always positive representation or just average everyday existence representation. So you'd see representation. Mm -hmm. It's more and more because of social media, but it's also what type of representation. Exactly, exactly. That's, that's fascinating. They address that. So um, how, how is their relationship with Latinas born in the United States versus those born in Latin America? Yeah, overwhelmingly our participants have said that their relationship with Afro-Latinas and Latinas born in the United States is far better than Latinx folks who were born in Latin America. Over and over, we're hearing language of folks who were born in Latin America are more judgmental, they're condescending, they're less accepting, things like that, versus people who were born in the United States. You have a similar experience as them because a lot of our participants, I think all of our participants, are born here in the United States. They say they have that equal footing with Latinos and Latinx folks who are born here in the U.S. So you have something similar and they tend to be more accepting and more aware of racial dynamics and racial problems in the United States. Um, whereas folks who were born in Latin America don't see that or take a little longer to come to that and also hold their own biases. What would you say on, on kind of questions that relates to that somewhat? <laughs> um, those that identify as Afro-Latinx with mm. the X phoneme, right? What do they, versus those in Latin America, I've heard people say that it's, it's we can't use that. It's unacceptable to use Latinx. Mm -hmm. What are you doing to the Spanish language? It's Latino or Latina. You're a female, you're Latina. Uh, what would you say about those who, who take on the identity of uh, Latinx? Dr. Heinz Gaither or Liz, feel free to chime in. We did not actually have participants who self-identified as, as the Latin X. X. Um, I would say we've had, this wasn't directly correlated to our research, but we've had conversations in our trainings and programs here about that. Actually, right. Liz has a program um, <laughs> coming up this semester. I've forgotten the exact title of the program. Hispanic, Latino, Latina, or Latinx. Oh, you've got to tell us about that when she's yes. done. <laughs> so Liz will be actually coordinating our program on this very question, Jadea. And so... Um, we, they didn't exclusively identify as such. For what we find here is that the Latinx um, oftentimes is um, definitely um, a term of solidarity in terms of a, um, not uh, essentializing one gender over another. Um, and so definitely a term of solidarity that many people adopt when they have that level of consciousness, usually on a college campus. Um, so definitely um, an exercise of solidarity. However, there's also reportedly a disconnect between families, like you have just mentioned, where this is not a term that they would feel comfortable speaking with their right. families about, their parents about. They kind of categorize it and leave it here in this academic space or spaces of social awareness, social consciousness, academic spaces, but in familiar context of it's the different. family, they do not tend to use this terminology because of everything that you just said. Right. That's interesting. So, Liz, you want to you can speak to that and also tell us a little bit about that uh, program. that program. Yeah. So, speaking to what Dr. Heinz Gaither just said, yeah. Even in my own experience at home, I would refer to myself if I was referring to myself in a context outside of being Puerto Rican specifically. I would probably say that I am Latina. I would not say Latinx at home, just because that's a larger conversation that I don't think 
I want to have with my family necessarily. And then when right. I go to my family in Puerto Rico, I would refer to myself as either Hispanic or just Puerto Rican. Right. Um, and that's an experience that tracks through my conversations with other folks who on campus identify as Latinx, but at home they would either say Latino, Latina, or Hispanic. Okay. And so what the program is going to be about is really what is the difference in those identifiers, what is the root of them, and where have they come from? So Hispanic as a term tying you, a lot of folks see it as a tie to colonization and the Spanish language, right? So that is centering the colonizer to some folks, while others just see it as a census categorization. The U.S. government gave it to us, so I am Hispanic, I speak Spanish, that's it. And then with Latino and Latina, then that's more Latin America, right? right. So derivative of the Latin language in that geographical region. Mm -hmm. um, and then Latinx is now coming up in academic spaces and on college campuses as a more gender neutral and gender inclusive way to identify. So the program is really going to be a conversation about the roots of each term and then just to get people to open up and talk about, well, why don't we say these things at home? Why don't we want to have those conversations with our parents? Is that really solidarity if we're not taking it home, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Sounds like a fascinating program. <laughs> Liz and you had mentioned earlier, we were, um, we were talking about kind of just the nuances of Latin Americans born in the U.S. versus Latin Americans born in um, Latin America. We have a program coming up on that as well. But <laughs> you guys have a lot of beautiful programs oh, in yeah. the world. Liz's position is very important. Mm -hmm. But um, in addition to college plug. Yes. Right. But in addition to that, um, can you talk about, I thought this was really interesting out of the research, the Afro-Latinas who spoke Spanish mm. versus those who did not speak Spanish. Yeah, that was a big piece of identity. So for a lot of the Afro-Latinas that we've interviewed, they talk about their parents speaking Spanish at home to each other or like speaking Spanish to their grandparents, but not speaking Spanish to them. So they would hear Spanish in the home, but they would never be expected to speak Spanish. So some folks do speak Spanish. Some of the young women do speak Spanish and they identify more with the Latinx side of their identity sometimes. So they very much live up in that and would be comfortable traveling back and forth from their home country or country of origin and here. Whereas the folks who heard Spanish but didn't speak it talk about um, feeling like maybe they weren't Latina enough mm. or um, they were just letting people down with that portion of their identity. And so they constantly had to overcompensate for not speaking the language. And it's a conversation back and forth between them about, um, mm, did my parents fail me? Why would they do this? You know, did I have a responsibility to learn on my own? Mm. And so that was very interesting. Those are challenging questions for a young adult. Right. Some of the participants also um, felt that the absence of speaking Spanish uh, was a barrier to really being inculcated within the larger kind of Spanish-speaking community mm -hmm. as well. Oh, okay, so a lot of teachers or educators uh, listen to this podcast, um, I hope. Uh, <laughs> the next question is kind of directed at those, those guys uh, because I believe as a high school Spanish teacher that this is a cultural awareness that cannot be overlooked. Have the participants seen their identity represented in curriculum, programming, or lesson plans? You know, that's the, that's the ask. Did teachers ever address this part of their culture? 
So the, the space of the world language classroom, it really is a beautiful home for, um, to talk about race, culture, gender. It really is a beautiful space to be able to do that because we're supposed to be culturally aware in a culturally world language classroom. Exactly, right? that's one of our tenets of our field. But what we found by and large with our participants is that they reported that this was not the case, that they did not see themselves as Afro-Latinas represented within their curriculum. Um, they talked about if they wanted, as, as a matter of fact, and I'm sure Liz will talk more about this, they actually, some of them reported having fairly negative experiences as well oh, within wow. the world language classroom. But they, From no experience to negative experience. Exactly. So their, um, their identities and cultural backgrounds and history was not represented in their curriculum. And we know that um, about four to five times more um, enslaved Africans were trafficked to Latin America than the 10% or so that came to what is today the United States. Mm -hmm. So the heritage of Afro-Latinidad is much more pervasive, if you will, in Latin America, if we look at numbers alone, than what we have in the United States. But oftentimes the instructors do not include this, um, are not aware of it. And we did see some... Um, resistance on the part of our students where they took the ownership to bring their own cultural identity into their classrooms. They didn't necessarily see that as an option in their world language classrooms, but like in their sociology classes, their history classes, they would make sure that their final papers, their projects were about um, Afro-Latinos or Afro-Latinx um, heritage and community. But in the space of the classroom, there really was a gap in terms of seeing themselves represented. Liz, would you add more? Yeah, 100% of our participants said that they did not see themselves represented, their Afro-Latina identity represented in a world language classroom. A couple of the participants had negative experiences with what you were talking about earlier, understanding um, that Spanish isn't just a formal language, that it is something that is lived and embodied in different right. countries throughout the world, right? So they would come in with their dialect or speaking in the way that they would hear spoken in their home or with their family, and teachers would say to them, that's not how you speak Spanish, that is incorrect, that is rude, that is improper. And so the students, we had um, a few participants who went away from Spanish language classes and chose a different world language after wow. that experience and so they turned away completely absolutely because they didn't see themselves represented and their the way their language was spoken was not valued in the classroom and mm. like on the flip side it not only was it not valued it was actively um suppressed exactly exactly uh yeah so that was the overwhelming experience with world language classes and we asked if they had anything to say to those teachers mm -hmm. or what they would tell them um, to help make the experience better for other Afro-Latinas potentially. And I think uh, the, the most common thing that we heard was it's, Spanish is not just a formal language with tenses and word composition and sentence structure. It is something that is lived and t spoken every it's single day. It's not explicit grammar instruction. Exactly. Exactly. There's a lot more to it. Than right. That. And they would love to see something that some of the students said was they would love to see the teachers take the culture more as opposed to just the language. So we had a couple of participants say that they 
they didn't think of their Spanish language classes as a space to learn about their culture. They saw it just as a place to learn the language, which when Krishana heard that, <laughs> she was shocked. Livid. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a real, it's a missed opportunity, a majorly missed opportunity, I think. If you're turning students away because they, they don't feel represented, right. it absolutely is a missed opportunity. Right. And it's their language, their culture. Exactly. And to walk away from that academic space, the academic exercise, because you feel devalued in that space. Or So do you think a lot of times, um, it, it seems statistically i don't i'm making up a number here yeah. i haven't looked at the actual data but it seems like a lot of uh language teachers tend to be uh white women um and non-native white women um so I, i'm thinking that may play a role in the cultural part that's missing yeah we have about 25,000 um, degrees that are conferred each year in languages. And the majority um, of those educators are white educators. Um, less, I've forgotten the exact percentage, um, but very small percentage of those are people of color, e either Latinx folks getting those degrees, um, or other people of color, or African Americans. The vast mm -hmm. majority of those are white, white educators who are getting those degrees um, and entering our classrooms. And also the gendered piece is very, mm -hmm. very, very real as mm -hmm. well. Um, so we certainly have, um, there is a disconnect, disconnect, if you will, from um, the, the students that are increasingly diverse in our classrooms. Right. And one of the reasons we decided to do this research was because we had so many self-identifying learners. learners of African descent and also Latina descent that we wanted to incorporate their stories. But there certainly is a disconnect between those who are educating them and the knowledge base that they bring and the sensitivity, the cultural sensitivity that they bring as well to the classroom space. So we have a real gap there um, that our educators are going to, and I, I said this um, earlier, that I have four degrees in, in most of them in languages and rarely did anyone ever teach me about Afro-Latinos. And so there is a lot of self-work that is going to have to happen, but I think educators can't rely on what I call the strategy of I do not know. Um, you have the capacity to learn anything that you want. Can the you information repeat is that? There. The strategy of I do not know. The strategy the of that I do not know. The strategy. Mm -hmm. I just didn't know that. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, 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 yes. It's I, not an excuse anymore. It is not. It is. There's, there's too many... You know, we yell and fuss at our students for being plugged in all the time. Right. But one of the things we have to give them credit for, they go and find the answers. They understand that that little phone is for more than just making phone calls. Right. It is a computer that lives in your pocket. And so there it's really there, is. A lot of times it's, it's, a, it's part of their identity. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And educate, if our students can look up information at the drop of a hat, our educators can do the same thing. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. Yeah. So did you, Liz, did you have Spanish in uh, high school? Did you I, take Spanish or world language? It's okay if you didn't. I did not take Spanish. So I also had a pretty negative experience. I moved to North Carolina from Puerto Rico when I was four years old. And I have a sister who is seven years older than me. So she entered into middle school. Um, right? Is that correct? Sounds she was right. 11. Yeah, <laughs> middle school. Um, she entered into middle school, and she was put in ESL classes, English second language classes. Right. And um, in those classes, she was told that her Spanish was incorrect. 
and she was a native Spanish speaker right. who only spoke Spanish. Right. She was told that her Spanish was incorrect. Was incorrect. Um, how did she bring that at home? Like how she did, how was did that livid. Yeah. <laughs> she came home angry, and my mom went to the school angry. <laughs> so it was. I mean, I remember this. I was four or five when this happened, and it was all over one word. So a word for a bureau in Puerto Rico, we call it a chiforobi. Mm-hmm. And her, the teacher was like, "What is that? That is we a made-up word." <laughs> and my sister was like, "I." I'm drawing it for you. This is what it means. <laughs> this is what it is. Yeah. So anyway, so my sister had that experience and that turned her off of taking Spanish language classes because she saw that that educator and she made the assumption that all Spanish educators don't know our version of Spanish, Puerto Rican Spanish. And so because of her experience, I didn't even want to risk that in the classroom. Wow. I didn't want to be told that I was speaking incorrectly because I have an accent, because something that I hear all the time is Puerto Ricans eat their R's, which is false, but I'll let, their, I'll let that go. <laughs> so I can, I, we have a, um, uh, I forgot the, the teachers. He's not a teacher. He's, he works with uh, youth uh, at our school that are tardy and absent, and he, and he, he does outreach, right? And mm-hmm. he's from Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. Um, my experience with him, I, I love his accent. <laughs> I love speaking with him in Spanish. It's amazing. Um, but the, the counselors and other teachers are like, do you under, those that speak Spanish, they're like, do you understand mm-hmm. anything he says? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm a, you know, I learn Spanish is my second language and I'm, I'm my second language and I'm still learning and he'll say things that I don't know that that I just don't know, but I understand him in a conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And but that to me that statement, do you understand what he says? Right. Yeah. Like what do, if you unpack what that mm-hmm. means, right? What are you saying by that? And how you internalize that. So for me, hearing that and hearing, well, you eat your words, you don't finish a whole sentence. To me, that made me not want to speak Spanish outside of my home because I know that I'm going to be judged or somebody is Mm -hmm. going to tell me that I'm not doing it correctly. And I don't want to hear that. So instead of going that route in high school, I decided to take Latin instead. In college, I decided to take Portuguese instead of Spanish as well. Wow. Yeah. So you hear that, educators. Um, I was going to say, what you just described, um, do you really understand what he's saying? The question that people were asking you mm -hmm. about the Puerto Rican uh, gentleman who spoke Spanish. Um, Robin DiAngelo in her book, uh, White Fragility, which I think can be applied to so many different forms of identity, not just whiteness, but so many different things. But she talks about a term, um, racial aversion which is a practice where people will oftentimes say things that are um, based in racism or very insensitive without actually being racist or insensitive. Mm -hmm. And so this is an example of like, do you really understand what he's saying to you? Like you just said, when you unpack that, what really is at the core of that are all of these insensitivities. And our students are reporting that's the the very attitude that people take into the classroom Mm -hmm. as well. So we're turning off potential educators you know, potential majors in Spanish. Absolutely. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that leads right into my last question I have for you guys. Uh, what advice do you have for world language teachers to better serve Afro-Latina or Latinx students? So maybe Liz can start with, um, maybe I'll start and then we'll end with the voices of our participants, actually. Maybe that would be a powerful way for us to end. I think that um, 
in the, I think that we need an overhaul of our teacher education programs, first of all. Yes. Um, I have some, I'm invited a lot to give workshops and training. Um, and I'm invited, um, oftentimes Spanish teachers themselves will invite me to their classrooms, which I really appreciate. I can also do French classrooms as well. Um, but I think more teacher education programs need to invite in experts. If there's knowledge, if there's a knowledge gap that the teacher education programs cannot fill, contract someone out to come in and to help you to fill that gap. Anyone, there's so many people who can fill that gap of knowledge so that our educators were into the classroom not having to do so much self-work, mm -hmm. but it will be a part of their curriculum mm -hmm. and teacher education programs to understand that you, you can't just offer students a single story of what it means to learn language. So I think it's really important to have those teacher education programs um, that are culturally responsive. I also think more professional development needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And you know, I see you, I'm always comforted to see one of my former students at a national conference like right, the right. American Council on Teaching of Foreign Languages. But that is also a very privileged place. It's very expensive to very go and be, yes, <laughs> and the average educator many times uh, do not have the support to be able to go to those types of conferences. Exactly. And so I would love to see just more professional development opportunities for educators to get that information. So those are the systemic things. On a personal level, as I said before, the information is in every social media source the same way that our students we ask them like how are you represented on social media they are seeing themselves now we have to complicate that representation right. but they are there is representation on social media in blogs in twitter in youtube videos the same way that our students are accessing those spaces and even on a different level articles and books the same way they're accessing this information our educators can do the same thing Liz. I think Krishana has said it beautifully, or Dr. Heinz Gaither, excuse me, has said it beautifully to me in the past that it's important to remember that if you are not um, a native speaker or of Latin American descent, it's important to remember that you're not an authority on the culture or the identity. You're not, you don't, there's no way to know every single thing about it especially never having experienced it yourself. So it's important to remember that you're a visitor in the culture and that you're trying to be a liaison between students and the country and the language and everything that comes along with that. So it's important to, we do something in our, in our office. So we do a lot of training in our office and we have guidelines and ground rules for our trainings. And one of the things that is in our ground rules for every single training that we tell everybody and tell ourselves is avoid social justice elitism. So remember that we're, nobody's perfect, that nobody is a, done with their social justice education. Mm. There's no mm -hmm. like, I finished the race, I did it, look at me, and you're so terrible, you're all the way back there. Got your social justice. Right, degree. exactly. <laughs> it's all over. Right. Right. So that's something that we remind ourselves in our work so that we're never so that we are never shaming anybody or making anybody feel like they can't come to us or they can't access our materials. So I would say if you can embody that in your own classrooms as well. Um, avoid that elitism of I know better than you. Yes, you are the educator. However, it is important to remember, especially when you're dealing or talking about Afro-Latina students or Latinx students in general, that they have a different experience than you and that's okay. That doesn't make their experience or their language wrong. It just makes it different. Mm. Fantastic. Uh, 
Well, I want to thank you both for being on the podcast today. This is a very enlightening thank conversation. You. Thank you. And you're listening to What in the World Language Podcast.